your Bible, if you would join me in Matthew chapter number 13, we're going to read verse 44 down to verse 46 today as we examine two more parables that the Lord gives us in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 13 and verse 44 down to verse 46 is our text today. The Bible says here, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth. And for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Father, we thank you for your word today, and our hearts are just filled with joy to sing praises to the one who is the greater Moses, the greater David, and the great pearl of great price. We pray that you would bless today, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of thy law. Be our teacher, our instructor. May your Holy Spirit have free reign in this place today. Anyone that doesn't know Christ, may today be the day of salvation. I'm so thankful that the precious lady who just called out the Christ in the last hour and trusted in Jesus Christ, what a joy. Thank you for how you've been working so mightily, and we pray that you would work now. We we turn our focus to you. We pray that you would help us to understand the, the value of Christ and his kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name, and God's people said, Amen. and you may be seated today. I would ask you the question, what makes something valuable? What makes something valuable to you? What makes it special? And if something is valuable to someone, how is that evidenced in their life? How would you know what someone values? And what do you most value in life? If I were to say right down the top three most valuable things in your life, what would they be? Today we're going to be looking at the all-surpassing value of the kingdom. Matthew 13, Jesus has been preaching on the kingdom of heaven. In seven different parables in Matthew 13, and a parable is basically, it was a word that meant to lay something down next to something else, to compare them with. So Jesus is laying down a physical story to represent a spiritual meaning, a spiritual reality. He's telling us what we can see, and he's telling us about something we cannot see by something we can see. Now we have looked at the first four parables, and today we're going to look at the next two and the first six parables of these seven parables in Matthew 13, the first six are put together in couplets or pairs. They're presenting the same kind of truths. The first two parables were a parable about sowing seed. And the parable of the sower and the four soils was the first one. And then the parable of the wheat and the tares in the second. And they highlighted the fact that there would be different responses to the gospel message. People would respond in different ways. If you've ever wondered why there are so many people who profess to be saved but don't possess Christ, there are, why do 70% of Americans claim Christianity? And in the last decades, around 80%, just a very high number, but it's like a 70 or 80% of Americans born-again Christians. Why is that? The first parable answers that question. Jesus said, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, is entering into the kingdom of heaven, but they that do the will of my Father. 
And then he goes on and gives a second parable about the wheat and the tares. And he talks about how Satan would plant unbelievers among the true believers, that he would come in spiritual deception. And the second parable answers the question, why are there so many religions in the world? Why are there so many false religions and cults? And and the answer is, according to Jesus, an enemy has done this. Satan has planted false religion as the great assault against the truth. And so many people today don't get saved because of hypocrites. Well, a lot of the hypocrites aren't even truly born again. They're false believers proclaiming to be saved. And the second reason a lot of people don't get saved is because they say, well, there's so many religions. How can you believe just one? Because an enemy did that. He wants to confuse the whole system. Now, in the first two parables... You would think that maybe the kingdom of God would not advance like it should. And that's why in the next two parables, he makes it abundantly clear that uh, the kingdom would advance, that it would go forth, that there would be great uh, worldwide impact by the gospel. And he gives it in two parables, one of a tiny mustard seed, which was the smallest of garden seeds that would grow into the biggest of plants in the garden, which would be like a tree compared to the rest of them. And then he says it's like a little bit of leaven put into a lump of dough, and that little bit of leaven just infiltrates it all. And those next two parables, he really is laying down the truth that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Now, in parable five and six, the Lord now answers the question, how does one enter the kingdom? And he is preaching to the Jewish people at this time. The Jews would have believed that Perhaps they could enter the kingdom by just being born as a Jew, by entering it by uh, being just a nationality, by being a descendant of Abraham. And so how do you enter the kingdom? Do you enter the kingdom by uh, observing the laws of Moses, by eating kosher, being circumcised, uh, holding Sabbath day regulations? How do you enter? And this last set, these, these next two parables that we're going to look at today will answer that question. And I want you to understand that Jesus, his focus was on the eternal, not the temporary. Everyone here today, you need to understand this very important truth. You are going to live somewhere forever. You will never cease to exist. You are created with an eternal soul, and you will live on somewhere forever. Jesus highlights this reality In verse 41 through 43 in our previous text, he says, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The horrific reality of those who do not know Christ as their Savior, who have not put their faith in Christ, will be separated from God in a real hell Jesus taught Secondly, he says, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And in this, you see that Jesus is telling you that you're going to either live in the torments of hell forever or in the glories of heaven forever. These two realities are before us. Now let's walk through the, this morning, I want to show you the physical meaning of these two parables and highlight three spiritual truths that we can learn from them. Listen, you, you, you need to set your focus on eternity. So often people get so focused on the temporary because that's what they see. You're very earthly minded. Anybody here ever 
later in life, as you've grown up older in life, you said, if I knew back then what I know now, things would be so different. Raise your hand if you've ever said that. Okay. Do you feel like you're wiser now than maybe you were back then, right? It's like, you know, some days, right? So, but you would say, man, if I would, if I would know now, like, I wish I could go back and grab my teenage self sometimes, my young teenage self. I was really, really foolish at times and just, you know, knocked some sense into me. But um, we say that on the physical level because we've aged 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, We feel like our eyes have been enlightened. Our minds have been opened. If that can happen on the physical realm, what kind of level of eye-opening reality will happen the moment we die and enter into eternity? What do you think we're going to say if almost every hand in this room, probably 90 plus percent of the hands were raised, how many of our hands would be raised in that day saying, if I knew back then what I know now? If I knew then what I knew now, if I could just have changed some things. And what I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus Christ is wanting us to understand the vast importance of what we're looking at today. The kingdom of heaven is so paramount, is so incredibly vital, important, vitally important. And this is an eternal reality. And you're going to live somewhere forever. Some of us don't know that. Some of us are so earthly-minded, we don't understand the reality of eternity. We, we, we look through the flesh, but we don't see the spiritual truths. And today, I just want to pull back the curtain and show you the reality of what Christ is teaching here. So let's look at these parables, and then we're going to look at three spiritual truths. The first parable is the parable of the hidden treasure. Verse 44, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth, and selleth all that he hath to buy the field. So the kingdom of heaven is compared here to a treasure. The word treasure is the Greek word thesaurus, where we get the English word thesaurus, which is just a treasury of words. And here it speaks about a place where you would store treasure, like a storehouse, a treasure chest, Uh, or some kind of treasury for safekeeping. And so the kingdom of heaven is like that. Matthew 6, 19 and 20, Jesus used the same word by saying, don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth, but lay up treasure in heaven. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And, And so the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, and he said, and it's hid in a field. Now, why is the treasure hid in a field? Well, to understand these stories, you must look at them through the lens of first century Palestine and not 21st century American eyes. This was something very common to them in that day. They understood it without even a thought. In our days, if we want something to be safe that is of value to us, we put in a safety box, we put it into the bank, we put it somewhere where it could be, have a level of security. But in those days, they did not have the banking systems that we have in our present day in our culture. So if you wanted to keep something safe, you went out and you buried it. If you were in early American history, you would have gone across the West. And if you had some gold, if you had some silver, if you had something precious and you didn't want somebody to break in and steal it when you went to town, you would have buried it, right? You would have put it somewhere. And some of you say, I have to do that now. (laughs) Now, people would bury items to keep safe. Matthew 25, 18, even the parable of the talents it talked about where the man 
buried the Lord's treasure in the earth there. Now, what could happen, and it was not uncommon, would people would bury a treasure, and uh, because of the amount of revolutions going on, the wars, the fightings, people, men would go off to war, die, and the treasure would stay hidden. Or they got sick quickly and died of something, uh, you know, strokes, heart attacks, those kind of things were going on as well, and, and they could die suddenly, and the treasure stayed buried inside the earth, hidden from sight. An instance of this happened during the War of Cessation in the South Carolina village. A shoemaker, upon the approach of hostile troops, hid $500 of gold. And he told his wife that he hid it, but he did not tell her exactly where it was. Within a few days, he suddenly died of a severe illness, and the gold was not discovered because the wife, though she searched diligently for it, never could find where he hid the gold, and today it's still hidden as far as we know. Someday, maybe somebody will be digging through the ground and find that gold that would be worth much more than $500. Now, in this parable, the man was not actually looking for the treasure in the field. It was not even his field, and we don't know why he was there. Maybe he was working for the man. There were a lot of farmers in that day. Agricultural work was a big business. And so maybe he was out plowing up the ground and he came across this treasure that was in the field. However he came upon it, he recognizes the value of it and he hides it and he goes and sells everything he has to purchase the field from the owner so that he might gain the treasure. Now, some would struggle to see how Christ could use this man as an example of anything that's good, seeing that what he does seems very unethical. The point Jesus is making in the story, and you need to understand when you read parables, you can't take every little thing to the nth degree. There's always one main truth Jesus is telling in the story. For example, the parable of the sower it's like, well, if the sower is spreading the gospel seed and, you know, farmers only spread the seed for a few months out of the year, does that mean we only share the gospel for a couple months? You see what I mean? You don't take the meaning to that kind of a level. There's one main truth that Jesus is trying to present and you need to grasp and understand that. He's not teaching the ethics of the man. He's talking about the pursuit of somebody who recognizes how valuable something is and he's pursuing it. But to answer the question as well, what the man did was not actually really unethical. He was actually doing something that was lawful according to Jewish law. For the rabbinic law of the day stated, if a man finds scattered fruit or money, it belongs to the finder. If they found scattered money or fruit, it would belong to the finder is what their law said. So if a person came across money, possessions, treasures, any type of thing, and the owner was nowhere to be found, if, they, if, if a person died and it was left there, uh, the person who found that, uh, they were able to keep. Also, the treasure was not something the owner knew about or owned, or else he would have retrieved it before he sold the land to the man. And then thirdly, the man has some level of honesty. I mean, if you found the treasure, why didn't you just take it? <laughs> I mean, why go through the whole business of selling and liquidating everything you have to buy the piece of property? So you can see the man had a level of ethics because he followed the law in that day, and what he did was actually lawful, just to answer the question. So that's the parable of the hidden treasure. The second parable is the parable of the pearl of great price, Verse 45, Jesus says again, and that word highlights the attachment of this parable to the previous. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. 
Now, we have different gems in our day that have the highest of value, diamonds being probably the most, one of the most precious gems of our day. But you need to understand, in first century Palestine, uh, uh, pearls were the greatest, most valuable gem in that day, even more valuable than diamonds. And here you have a merchant man. It is the Greek word emporos. And it spoke of a man who was a traveling merchant. He worked as a wholesale dealer and not a retail dealer. And what I mean by that is he would buy enough pearls to where he would sell them to the business. He was not a retailer. He didn't sell them to individuals. So he bought and sold uh, at a large kind of a retail or a large kind of a wholesale business. Now, in his merchant occupation, he's seeking fine pearls. He probably would have gladly gone to the coastal areas and uh, bartered with the different people that were on the ships and those that were divers seeking these pearls from the mollusks down in the ocean. Pearls were sought after in the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, as well as the Persian Gulf. Uh, they were not easy to retrieve. If you just do a little bit of research on on, on the retrieving of mollusks back in early American history, you'll find that you know the guys were going in these big heavy suits. A, you know, a big air pipe was coming down to them. Their helmet, you know, the hat was huge, and 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 they had lead in their shoes so that they would sink pretty quick. You know, and this is something that you don't really think about because we're like in the middle of the United States. Um, but people that are on the ocean around that area. Uh, going down quickly, you can, you can die if you go down too quick or you come up too quick. You've you got to descend at a right speed. Uh, last year, I was over in, in, the, in the ocean with my wife, and I had to dive down to the anchor was stuck like 20 feet down. And, you know, we had just seen some sharks, and I was like, ah, you know, I was out on a boat by ourselves. And, and I thought, you know, this is time to put my, keep my man card, you know. I have to show my wife I'm still a man here, you know. You can't leave the anchor out here, you know. So... So I dove down there and, and ended up popping one of my eardrums because you don't realize the amount of pressure that you get when you go down. And so it's just, it's just not a safe, easy thing to do. And, and I remember every time I'd snorkel around the reef, it's like there's barracudas everywhere. You know, you ever see them barracudas? They open their mouths and they get it right up close to you, man. And thought, I'm going to shoot this thing. I had a little bow with me. But so, so what these guys are doing is not an easy thing. It's not, not always... The, the safest thing, a lot of people died in America's history, thousands died doing this, but even back then what they would do is they didn't have the, you know, the breathing apparatuses that we have, so they would, they would just tie a rock to themselves, dive out of a little boat, and just sink down looking for these different mollusks to get pearls. So pearls were of incredible value, and it took a lot of work to retrieve them. Uh, the Jewish Talmud said pearls are beyond price. The Egyptians actually worshipped the pearl, and the Romans copied that practice. First uh, Timothy 2 talks about where if a woman wants to show her value, they ended up putting pearls in their hair, and Paul says you don't have to be like that. The wife of the Roman emperor Caligula, uh, Lalolia uh, Paulina, once went to a dinner party. She had pearls in her hair, on her uh, around her neck, her ears, fingers. Uh, she had so many pearls that, that it says that she has $36 million of equivalence today's value on her body just in pearls. And so pearls were, were just of such value. And we know according to Revelation 21, 21, the Bible says the 12 gates of the new Jerusalem that will descend down from heaven has 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was one pearl. So we see that pearls... Uh, were the chief gem of the old world. 
So this merchantman finds a pearl that is of such incredible value. Verse 46 says, who when he found one pearl of great price, he went and literally liquidates everything he has to get it. I mean, what would it take for this man who was a wholesale dealer to sell everything he had to gain that one pearl? Now that gives us the two parables, the earthly stories. What are their significance? Let me give you three truths that I want to highlight today. The first is we see here the priceless value of the kingdom. According to Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, the one who spoke the worlds into existence, ex nihilo, or out of nothing, the God who is omniscient, who knows everything. If we were to ask him, what is really valuable? Because you raised your hand today and said, there are things that I value now that I did not understand back then. So let's ask the creator of all things, what is, oh God, the most valuable of things? What, what carries the great, greatest of value? And according to God, Emmanuel, the Lagos made flesh, he tells us here that the kingdom is of such value that it would be worth you giving up everything you have to obtain it. And you would have the greatest deal of your life to do so. That there is nothing in the world more valuable than having the kingdom. And to have the kingdom is to have the king. Because you cannot separate the king from his kingdom. To possess the kingdom is to possess the king. Jesus in these parables is saying that whatever you have cannot be compared to how immeasurably valuable the kingdom is. Nothing in your life is more valuable than knowing Christ. If you have your Bibles, if you could flip over with me to Philippians chapter 3, let me just highlight how Paul understood this. When you read Philippians 3, Paul goes through the first six verses declaring his credentials everything that he had accomplished up to that point in his life, all of his greatest achievements. And he says, out of everything that he achieved, everything that he valued, everything that was of worth to him, he says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me? And, And what he means by that is, he was living in a world that told him what was valuable. So he achieved it. He became the greatest of Pharisees. He became the greatest of Jews. He became the most disciplined. He he built the resume. But what he didn't understand was what the world said is valuable. It's not what God was saying is valuable. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. The word counted there is actually an accounting term. It's like you put a ledger together and says, let me add up all the things over here and all the items over here. And he said, after I added it all up, it was worth nothing. I counted it loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them, but skubalon is the Greek word. It is a word that was used to speak about casting scraps to dogs, throwing trash out because it was totally worthless, 
It was also used to refer to human excrement. That's why it's translated as dung here in the King James Bible. He says, everything that the world told me that was valuable, after my eyes were opened to Christ and the kingdom, I now understand what I did not understand back then. I now understand all of that isn't worth anything compared to knowing Christ. Christ is a treasure that is incomparable. You can't compare anything to it. It's so high it makes everything look like trash. It's so amazing, it's so beyond words that selling and giving and sacrificing and surrendering all that you are and all that you have cannot even touch the hem of the garment of the value of Christ. If you know Christ, you're wealthier than Bill Gates. You're wealthier than Donald Trump. You're wealthier than Elon Musk. You're wealthier than anyone in the world. So I don't really always feel wealthy. That's because you see through physical eyes. And we feel the physical pain of these bodies. Amen? I mean, but, but you need to understand today that you go home today as children of the King. If you're a believer, you, you have an eternal inheritance in heaven. Your retirement not looking good, maybe it is this year. No matter what that says, I can tell you, eternity awaits you and you will shine like the sun in the radiance of that place. The streets are made of gold there according to ultimate reality. According to God-made flesh, when he came here, why do you think he wasn't concerned about his physical living habitation? Why do you think he did not care about all these things? John the Baptist did not care. There is a reality for us, and we must open our eyes to the great, vast glory of that. Sadly, often as Christians, we lose the perspective. We begin to value things that are not valuable. Like, like, Michigan has no value in my eyes, the team. Right? Not the state. You know, there's souls there. Need to be saved. You know, sometimes they cross the border and come down to Ohio. You know, we preach the, if you're from Michigan, you know, there's a place here for you at the altar. No, Actually, it's either way. But, you know, when it comes around the fall, I value seeing Ohio State win. But the value of that is so small compared to the value of knowing Christ. It's okay to appreciate things. It's okay to have value in things in the earth. But we need to make sure there's nothing that even touches the value of Christ in our life. Paul is saying this is the great value of all things. And I believe that everybody here wants their life to mean something. I mean, don't you, don't you want your life to matter? Don't you want to get to the end of your life and say, you know what, I feel like I, my life made a difference. I feel like I, I made an impact in the world. I think, I think one of the things that causes people great suffering in the world mentally is they feel like they don't have any purpose. Anybody ever felt like that? You just lost purpose? When you, the, peop, the reason people commit suicide is they lose purpose. They, they don't feel like they have any meaning in life. Listen to me. Jesus says, you cannot go higher than the kingdom and the king. That is the greatest treasure. If he is the greatest treasure, what's the greatest thing we can do in life? 
share the treasure, right? You give your life to sharing Jesus with people, and your life as a Christian will never grow tired. The people in my life that I see that, oh, you know, they don't really have a passion for the word. They don't have a passion for prayer. Christianity kind of seems kind of mundane to them. I can tell you they're not sharing Christ. Because I can tell you it's the most exciting thing in the world when you go out and tell somebody about Jesus Christ. To, to tell somebody what Jesus Christ has done for you. To, to go to your neighbors, to go to your friends, to declare the glories of him. To see people come to know Jesus. On that trip we were on, I got a chance. I was on a taxi cab taking us to the place where we were going. And then the man in the car, I was asking him about his faith and walking. You know, I mean, I mean, it's just me and my wife. And there was this guy. And I thought, yeah, buddy, this is closed captive audience right here, buddy. He don't know who he's taking to this place. So I was sitting there, you know, we had a 20-some minute drive. And, and I got talking to him about his, his, his life. And, and, and then I talked about his faith. And he said, you know, my family... At first, he started like really putting down church. He didn't know I was a pastor or anything. And I uh, said, yeah. I said, you know, there are a lot of struggles about, you know, different things. And I said, you know, I'm, um, I said, I'm actually a pastor. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, no, don't apologize. <laughs> I said, um, uh, he said, you know, my wife and daughter go to church. He said, and then after he talked for a few minutes, he started getting teared up. He said, you know, I had a dream the other day that Jesus Christ was coming back and I got left behind. I put my hand on his shoulder. I said, I think God has me in this car sitting here talking to you for a reason. I said, you need to fully commit your life to Jesus Christ. And I said, whatever somebody's done to offend you, I said, don't, don't follow the offender out of church. Follow Christ where he wants you to serve him. Don't let some hypocrite have more influence over your life than the commands of the king. Why would I allow a Judas to keep me from serving Jesus? Does that make sense? When people get out of church, get away from serving God, you've allowed a hypocrite, maybe a Judas, maybe even a false Christian, maybe even a tear among wheat that Satan sowed, keep you from following Jesus. Why on earth would you ever let them have influence over your life to the point where you would disobey the clear commands of Christ to obey your frustration toward them? That is a very foolish way to live. We've, we've, all, probably been, we've all probably been subjected to that at some point because Satan whispers those lies in our head, right? Well, if a Christian can do that, then I'm not going to believe. And Jesus says, you don't follow me because of their perfection. You follow me because of my perfection. Christ is our eyes. It must be on him. He's the, he's the chief reward. And so uh, then when I got to where we're going, I got talking to a guy we were renting a boat from, and his son was not a believer. And this guy is a great Christian guy. And sadly, his son had been praying for his son, Drew. If you could remember to pray for him too. But I uh, got in a conversation with him, and, and, uh, and he didn't get saved, but he was going out the next day for three months out on the sea. They go out on the sea and fish for three months, going down 80 feet, down getting lobster, some crazy stuff. And, um, but, but wherever we go, friends, we have a chance to share Christ. Wherever we go, we can go tell somebody about Jesus Christ. He comes with us. I would ask the question today, who's the last person you shared that treasure with? I can tell you, people in my life in the fall, they know at some point during the football season, I'm, they'll probably be like, yeah, he's a Bengals fan, unfortunate guy, but he's a Bengals fan. <laughs> Actually, it's not that unfortunate these years, but he's a, he, he, you know, the guy's a Buckeye fan. You know, I'm not, I may, I may have a jersey on or some, some Ohio State paraphernalia, but I can tell you that stuff is so small to me compared to Christ. I want people in my life to know that that person is a believer in Jesus Christ. There's a man I just found out when I got back from a trip, 84-year-old, 84, 85-year-old man who just died, uh, worked out with him over at the Wyatt Times. I'd see this guy, and um, 
very nice guy, and I remember sharing Christ with him in the weight room, and he actually came to our church, and, and, and I, listen, we can't save people, but we can tell them. We can tell them about Jesus Christ, and, and, and my heart goes out to that family, and I don't know if he ever committed his life to Christ. Maybe he did, and I pray that he would, and, and if trusted in Christ, and, and his life is committed to eternity at this point, but we can only do what we can do. We can't save anybody, but we can tell them. And they, it shows, uh, different statistics have shown that people have to hear the gospel seven times on average before they come to know Christ as their Savior. And you can't save anybody, but you can tell them. Some plant, some water, but the Bible says God brings the increase. You may be the first person that shares with them, the second, third, or fourth, but just share the gospel. You need to tell them. Listen, if, if you knew your neighbor had cancer and you had a cure for cancer, would you share it with them? And if you didn't share it with them, what would that say about you? Say so you probably didn't love them. You didn't care about them, right? And what's more important than preserving their physical life would be preserving their eternity. And you can't force them to receive Christ. If we could force them, I'd take the biggest dudes in here. We'd be going down every street, right? <laughs> take him! Take him in! Say it, you know. We'd do it. We'd round it up, buddy. We'd do some enforcement. Some of them young punks wouldn't mind, you know, straightening them out a little bit, you know, but we can't do that. But you know what? We can share Christ in love. We can go to them and, and care about them, serve our neighbors, share Christ. Listen, if you've never told your neighbors about Christ, I would have to ask the question, do you really value Christ? And do you value them? Have you told anyone? If you have a coworker that you can work with, have you ever told them about Christ? You say, well, we're not allowed talking about Jesus at work. Listen, I believe that if you're at work, you need to be working. And, you know, you're, you're, you, they didn't call you there to be a pastor, so you need to work. And I worked a lot of secular jobs, and I worked hard. But I know lunchtime came. I know we'd be out loading stuff up in casual conversations. We could talk about a lot of different things. And, and if Jesus is in your heart, he'll come out of your mouth. And it just needs to flow organically. It just becomes part of your life. It just flows out of you. And so we see here the value of Christ, value of the kingdom. Secondly, we see the hidden nature of the kingdom. The hidden nature of the kingdom. Did you notice in both parables that the kingdom was not easily visible? The first parable speaks of the treasure being hidden in the field. The second parable, the guy is searching out the pearl. When the Pharisees came asking Jesus, where is the kingdom and when is it coming? Jesus said in Luke 17, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. You're not going to see it. The kingdom of God, he said, is in you. This is the spiritual aspect of it. Because the Lord's spiritual kingdom cannot be seen with physical eyes, the natural man doesn't understand the value of salvation because the natural man just sees the flesh, empirical stuff. It's like going to a field and you don't realize there's millions of dollars of gold inside the field because all you can see is the dirt. And so God became flesh. He veiled his glory inside of flesh and people could not see the value of him. He was so human. He was so humble. He was so meek and he did it on purpose. He said, Thomas... You believe because you've seen me? Blessed are they who have not seen me and believe. Everybody would believe if they saw him in his glory. Every demon fell down trembling before the glory of Christ. Because they saw right through the flesh. They're like, what are you doing here, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Most high God? Have you come to torment us before the time? They were terrified at his glory. 
Demons recognized his majesty. But we get, in our world, people are so earthly focused, they don't see the value of Christ. That's why some people may come to church today, hear this message, and not even think about giving their life to Christ because they just don't see the value. They don't see the value. I can tell you this, there's nothing in your life that's going to be more important in your existence ever than knowing this truth. You will never hear anything in your life more important than knowing about Jesus Christ, committing your life to him, repenting of your sin, and confessing Christ as Lord. Nothing in your life is more valuable. Nothing has greater influence, impact, eternal ramifications for you. Nothing. Nothing. In a thousand years from now, what will it matter what your 401k says? What will, in a hundred years from now, none of that matters. What's going to matter is what you've done with Jesus Christ. And here we see the hidden nature of the kingdom. Now, the first man accidentally finds the treasure. He was not actually looking for it. And the second man finds the treasure after he is looking for it. This lets us know some people get saved and they're not even looking for salvation. They just come across it. And some people get saved because they are pursuing it. Romans 10 verse 20, Paul's quoting Isaiah 65 verse 1 and he says this, I was found of them that sought not after me, and I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. I think about the woman at the well. Did she go to the well to meet Jesus, or did she go to the well to get water? But at the well, she found the water of life, didn't she? We think about Saul on the road to Damascus. He was not looking for salvation. He was looking to kill Christians, imprison them, and persecute Christ and Christianity. But it was on that road that the good shepherd found that lost sheep. The Philippian jailer wasn't looking for salvation in Acts 16, but that night he found the hidden treasure. Think about when you got saved. Maybe you were just living your life. You were being the Lord of your life, calling the shots, and and God, the sovereign one, intersected with your life and awakened your soul to your need of salvation. And you're here today because you weren't looking for salvation, but salvation was looking for you. So there are those who get saved that are not looking for it, but God brings that truth to them. Secondly, there are those who are seeking truth in God. They are seeking the truth. They're desiring God. They want to know the truth, and they find the truth. You know, God says, seek me, and you'll find me when you search for me with all of your heart. Jesus even said in John 5, 30, uh, 39, I believe it is, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Search the scriptures. Someone will say to me, well, Romans 3.11, preacher says, there's none that seeketh after God. And I would agree, there is none that seeketh after God. But I would also confer that Roman, John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. And if none means none in Romans 3.11, then all means all in John 12.32. And he draws all men to himself. And then he gives us spiritual eyes. That's what faith is. Physical eyes show us empirical realities spiritualized, show us the spiritual realities. And in Romans 12, 3, the Bible says, God hath dealt to every man a measure of faith. God expects you to appropriate your physical eyes and use them in the same way he expects you to use your spiritual eyes to look to Christ, to use your spiritual senses. That's why in Matthew 13, 9, he says, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, let me give you a couple examples of people that were pursuing the truth and God brought the truth to them. If you seek the truth, he will reveal it to you. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 10, a man named Cornelius was a centurion, a Roman official, 
It was over 100 men. And he was praying to God. He was a devout man that feared God with all of his house, but he was not saved. And an angel said, send men to Joppa for Simon Peter, and he will tell thee words by which you and all your house will be saved, according to Acts 11, verse 13 through 15. That's what happened. I think about the Ethiopian eunuch. He was heading to Jerusalem to worship God, wasn't he? And he was reading Isaiah 53. And God told Philip, go join yourself to that chariot. He joins himself to the chariot. And the man says, um, who is this man speaking of himself or someone else? And at the same scripture, he began to preach unto him Jesus. And that man trusted in Christ that day. Those were divine workings. When you seek the truth, you will find it. It breaks my heart when I talk to people who say, well, you know, I don't know if I believe. And, and any time I talk to somebody who has like no faith to believe, you know, if do you believe in heaven and hell? I don't know if I believe that. You believe Jesus died and God? Oh, no. You know, they just don't, don't believe anything. I always tell them, you've never read the Bible, have you? They're like, how did you know? Because if you have no faith, faith comes by hearing the word, you have snuffed out that spiritual sense. And if you value your soul, would it not be worth taking one month of your life, opening the Bible, reading through the gospel of John and saying, God, if this is true, show me. And I challenge you, friend, if you're here today and that's you, you say, well, I don't believe it. I believe in science. Oh, really? Because I could walk you through a lot of evolution and tell you how science fiction a lot of that is. Creation is here and somebody had to create it. And so I would ask you, if you've studied that, why don't you take the time for yourself, not because your wife says it, not because your husband, not because your parents, not because your kids, not because anyone else tells you, but for yourself, Seek the truth. The man who helped me start Lighthouse was an atheist who made his mom cry for going to church, but who finally said, if I was wrong about Jesus, he said, I would be a fool not to know it. So he began to read the Bible. He began to read John, and he studied the scriptures, and he wanted to know. He was an atheist. He didn't believe in God, didn't believe any of it. He said, the only thing I know about Jesus is what I've learned from Homer Simpson's. He knew nothing. And today he's preaching the gospel in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. What happened to him? I told him, I said, if Jesus is not who he said he was, he'll do nothing for you. I said, but if he's real, I said, he'll change the rest of your life. And he sought the truth and the truth was found. He was a young teenager who drinking, living immorality, fornicate, just, just sinning. Got to a point where he didn't want to live anymore. That he's a wonderful father of three children, a wonderful husband. He's impacted thousands of people in his life. That's what happens when ultimate reality comes inside of your life. Listen, if you're not saved today, you need to search the scriptures. You need to ask if this is true. Think about what you're risking. Much more I could say about that, but I would encourage you, if you're not part of our 242 groups on Sunday night, that is a perfect place to dive into the scriptures. I think a lot of parents are losing their kids because their kids never seek the scriptures for themselves. One thing this, these 242 groups on Sunday nights do, it causes kids to get into the Word of God. It causes parents to get into the Word of God to ask for themselves, what does this mean? If all the Bible learning you get is when somebody else tells you, you're going to fall away at some point. You need to get into it for yourself. You need to own your faith. I don't want my kids believing what I believe because I say it. I have never ever told them, you need to believe this because I'm your dad, I'm your pastor, and you need to believe it, ever. When they come to me and they say, dad, you know, over the years, you know, why should we believe the Bible and not some other religion? Every time, if they've ever said that, I say, that's a great question. 
Let's sit down and talk about that. We'll walk through the scriptures. What's the Bible say here? What the Bible say? And, and they believe what they believe so that if I die, I know they're going to continue on because they've owned their faith. They have to believe it for themselves. And so what happens when people place no value on the scriptures? What happens when people place no value to search it out? It will stay hidden from you. That's why Matthew 13, 11, it says, He answered and said unto them, Because it's given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom, but to them it's not given. Having eyes they see not, having ears they hear not. And the judgment of Isaiah 6 was placed upon the people of that day. Jesus told the people of his day, If you knew this day the things that belong to your peace, but now they're hid from your eyes. Luke, 12, Luke 19, verse 42 they were hid from them because they didn't value it. And, and, and we're going to find that out later in Matthew 13 where they said they heard Jesus and they're like, wow, this is so amazing what he's saying, but isn't this just Jesus? Isn't this Mary's son and his brothers among us? And they, they devalued him. That's what always happens in the world when people don't receive Christ. They're like, yeah, but... And then they begin to devalue him. And all they're doing is hiding the treasure, losing sight of the immense eternal treasure because all they can see, they turn it into dirt value. But the treasure has to be excavated. It isn't that something. All the precious gems on the world, in the world, they're not found on top of the earth. You got to go down in the water. You got to go down in the ground. You got to excavate them out. Let me give you a, th- a third spiritual principle off of this. The fifth truth today is the test of value. Look with me to Luke 14 and we're going to wrap up there really quickly. Luke 14. Now, what I want you to see is in both of these parables, the men were willing, not only willing, but joyfully willing to sell literally everything they have to get the treasure or the pearl. Now, people would object to this and say, how can you purchase Christ, the kingdom, or salvation? Can you buy salvation? No, the point is not that we have anything to pay salvation for. We have no righteousness to pay for that. That's not what he's saying here. His point is that the all-surpassing value of salvation, which would mean that you would be willing to give up anything to possess it. It's so valuable that whatever you have would be worth giving up to obtain it. Matthew Henry says, though nothing can be given as a price for this salvation, yet much must be given up for the sake of it. Salvation is free. It cannot be earned with money. The Bible tells us it's the free gift of God. But the Bible uses terms like Proverbs 23, 23. says, buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Can you buy truth, wisdom, and instruction? No. But it's understanding this is the value of it. You should seek it. Revelation 3, 17 and 18. He told the church at Laodicea, the, the church fallen away, he says, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And he says, you don't even know you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And, and what he's saying there is, in a spiritual sense, he's saying, you're, you're not even saved. You're a lost church. That's why he says, I stand at the door and knock later in that chapter. And look what he says to them in verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. What he's saying there is, Come to me, I have what will clothe you with righteousness. And he's putting it in that kind of language. Now, you can't buy salvation. He's just saying that that is the pursuit you need to have, that you would give up all that you are for all that he is. Now, three times Jesus makes a statement in Luke 14. You cannot be my disciple if you don't do these things. 
the way you know you value Christ properly is in these three truths. These are the tests of true Christianity. These are the tests of understanding true value. The first thing is in Luke 14, 25. Notice what he says. And there went great multitudes with him. If I could stop for just a moment. This is a couple weeks before Jesus is crucified. He's on the way to Jerusalem at Passover. They have estimated there could have been an entourage of up to 200,000 people around Christ. These are massive crowds. Huge numbers of people. He turns around and says to the great multitudes with him. Now what is Jesus going to say the last couple weeks of his life to the huge crowds of people? And he said unto them, verse 26, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The word disciple is a word that simply is synonymous with what we would use as the word Christian. You cannot be a true believer. So is Jesus saying you have to hate your family? Is, is he the God of hate? No. The Bible says we need to love others as ourselves. right? What he's saying is the word hate could be used in that time to speak of a, a disdain for something, but it also could be used of saying a preference of one thing over another. And that's the way it's used here as the parallel account of this in Matthew 10, 37 says this, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus is teaching here is this. If you value Christ and you understand his true value, you will value him over every single human relationship in your life. There will be no one that you value more than Christ. What that also means is this. You won't let any human relationship come between your relationship with you and Christ that will keep you from following him. Some people today say, well, you know, I know Christ doesn't want me to commit fornication, but man, if I don't keep living with so-and-so, they, they're not going to stay with me. So you're putting them before Christ, right? Is that right? If the Bible says, uh, Ephesians 5, 3, let fornication not once be named among you as become a saint. You know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Galatians 5, uh, verse 19 and 20 says that, people continuing in open known sin. They're not going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Be not deceived, he says. So, so listen, don't let any human, if, if you allow human relationships to keep you from following Christ, you're placing them over Christ. That's idolatry. That's what that means. Don't tell me that you value Christ. Don't, don't, don't tell me how much you love him and worship him when you let other people keep you from following him fully. Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple. I'm not writing the Bible. I'm just telling you what it says, and I love you enough to tell you what it says. And then secondly, Christ must be valued more than your comfort in life. Luke 14, 27 says this, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, we live in a comfortable Christianity in America today where people are comfortable. We love our conveniences. One of the dangers for Christians today is they want a spiritual life to be as comfortable as their physical life. They want, they want easy-bait Christianity a comfortable Christianity. They, they want a message that fits their life, that itches their scratch, fills their needs, supports their desires. That's not what Christ came to do. He came to save us from our sins, not to enhance our life. Listen, you're not rearranging the furniture on the Titanic when the Titanic's sinking. He didn't come to make the ride comfortable. He came to save us from death, hell, and the grave, right? 
if the plane's crashing, you're not like, man, this seat's kind of uncomfortable, Lord. You know, you're like, can I have a parachute? Right? We're not the, par- we're not the comfortable church. We're the church that's going to preach on, you must believe in Christ to be saved. You need the parachute. The ship is sinking. Be saved. You're going to live forever somewhere. Wake up to that reality and God loves you. And you're here because he wants you to know that reality. You're going to spend forever somewhere. So much I could say about that in Luke 14. The curse of time is still in this present age, so I must move on. The last, the last thing he says is this. Not only must you place Christ above every relationship, place Christ above all your comfort, but thirdly, you must value Christ above all your possessions. Luke 14, he says this, so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. So according to Jesus, you have to be willing to forsake everything you have to follow him. Does that mean you become poor and homeless? Nope. But what it does mean is that you become a owner of nothing and a steward of everything. You own, as a Christian, nothing. But in doing so, you own everything. <laughs> People who get it will never say, you mean as a Christian, if I, you, know, you mean I need to give that up? You mean I need to stop doing? It's like, oh, you, oh, he's, you think Jesus is cheap. You want the bargain Jesus. The bargain Jesus might be in the church down the street. The bargain Jesus isn't in the Bible. We're not going to preach that kind of Jesus. You want Jesus. You give up everything you are to have everything he is. You want eternal life? You give up your life. Jesus said, he that saves his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. And here's the glory of the reality. Everything you give to Christ, he keeps giving it back better. I'm like, God, I give you my children. They're, they're not my kids. They're your children. Take my children. And he just gives them back better. Lord, it's, they're your finances. I give you my finances. He just gives it back better. Lord, I give you my worries, I give you my stress, I give you my heartache, I give you my fears, I give you my doubts, and he just gives me back peace. You just keep dumping it on him, and he just keeps returning it better, and it's like, who's the fool that doesn't turn their life over to Christ? Who's that foolish person that stays in the driver's seat? What a, what a person would they have to be only looking at a dirt field, not recognizing the value of the treasure and the king that could sit on the heart of your throne of your heart, if you just would give your life to him. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I'm telling you, you are being offered eternal life from the king. The reality is you're going to live forever somewhere. The older we get, we all say this. We say it to our kids. We say it to our grandkids. (laughs) Yeah, wait till you get my age. You're going to appreciate running around like that, little punk. Yeah, you run for days. Yeah, fall on your knees. You jump right back up laughing. I fell on my knees. I'd be two replacements. Like, this is, right? You ever look at them kids just like, nothing hurts? I'd be an ICU if I landed on my knee like that. We we don't appreciate things, our health, our bodies, things we could do when we're younger. Because we get older, we're like, we want to be a little safer. (laughs) Amen. I don't take the risks I used to. There's things life has opened our eyes to. I'm going to tell you guys, 
if that happens in a very temporary reality on this earth, how much is illumination going to grip our soul the moment we step into eternity and say, oh God, God of glory and grace, what you said is true. 